0: This week in the enterprise security news, Ping Identity's Ping ID multi factor authentication is now available in the AWS marketplace. 8,000 unprotected Redis instances are available on the internet. Twofin announces free firewall change tracker to enhance network security and connectivity for remote workforces. S- uh, simple Advanced Persistent Threat Emulation from Ixia with their Breaking Point product. In our second segment, we welcome back Farah Mavituna, the CEO and founder of NetSparker, to talk about the time to measure security improvements in application security. In our final segment, we air a pre-recorded interview from RSA 2020 um, with Ed Bellis, the co-founder and chief technology officer at Kenna Security. Uh, discussing moving towards modern vulnerability management. Stay tuned for all that and more on this episode of Enterprise Security Weekly. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where we talk security vendors and aren't afraid to name names. It's Enterprise Security Weekly. The VIAVI Solutions Observer platform provides SecOps teams a powerful combination of comprehensive data for threat hunting and incident response that includes wired data analytics and enriched flow records. Using pure, unaltered packet and net flow, Observer presents views across the entire IT infrastructure with threat alert features including scope, impact and advanced traffic profiling. Teams can use automated workflows to dive into high-fidelity network evidence and more quickly resolve issues, minimizing impact on customers, users, and business operations. Learn more about the VIAVI network security solution and download free resources at securityweekly.com forward slash VIAVI. That's V-I-A-V-I. You want to get the right things done for your security program. Sounds simple, but what are the right things for you? What does done mean? And how are you going to get there? Rapid7 realizes more than anyone how hard this can be. While Rapid7's Insight platform offers you industry-leading vulnerability management and detection and response solutions, their focus is on understanding where you are so that they can help you get where you're going. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash rapid7 to get started. Welcome everyone to episode 178 of Enterprise Security Weekly for April 8th, 2020. I'm your host, Paul Sidorian, joined by Matt Alderman. Remotely, Matt, welcome. Thank you. Enjoying the Colorado sunshine before we get snow again this weekend. (laughs) There you go. Uh, Join Qualys for VMDR Live on April 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern Time for a live demonstration of the Game Changing Vulnerability Management Detection and Response offering Uh, Offering a unified solution that integrates vulnerability management, threat prioritization, and patching in a single app. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash VMDR2020. We are looking for high-quality guests for this show, Enterprise Security Weekly, to fill upcoming uh, recording schedules. If you know someone working in Enterprise doing cool stuff that wants to come on the show and talk about it, you can go to our website and and, uh, hit the guest suggestion form, securityweekly.com forward slash guests. So please do that, and we review those suggestions on a monthly basis, sometimes more frequently, especially if we have some open slots. All righty. In the enterprise security news this week, what is it with endpoint security companies, Matt? There's still a ton of them. There Uh,
1: are. But if you look at the announcements, right, you would think maybe it slows down a little bit with all the stuff going on. But what you're seeing is everybody shifting announcements to remote workforce. Uh, And so the endpoint players have a really strong uh, play here because people have to protect all these remote devices that are now all over the place. So you just see a lot of announcements that are really helping people out in this time of of struggle. Or trying to. I I mean... Trying to. The endpoint security
0: products, they have to be, number one, a really good product. Uh, Number two, they have to be configured really, really well uh, in order to be even somewhat effective uh, against attackers. Uh, And so I, I think there's a lot of gaps, especially if you're remote workforce is solely relying on an endpoint uh, protection agent uh, that, that's a really hard game to play because it's a cat and mouse game with the attackers, right? I mean, they're going to find malware uh, infection techniques uh, in different ways of exploiting your remote workforce and your in-office uh, workforce as they were before. Everyone was working from home uh, in just so many easy ways, uh, some more advanced ways, but basically, they all bypass most of the endpoint protection that's around today, especially if it's not configured properly, right? Now, we do partner with uh, many organizations, right, in the past that make awesome endpoint protection tools. Um, Endgame now, Elastic, of course, always did a great job of trying to keep up and do the best. But I like the strategy, Matt, because if I the reason I've been thinking a lot about this is I introduced a Windows PC to my home. And you get kids on a Windows PC that's connected to the internet, Like your infection time is ridiculous. And I'm like, I could put all kinds of antivirus stuff on there, but I'm like, it's still going to get infected. So like, why even bother? Let me just try and lock it down. Without the enterprise uh, event and log management and network traffic inspection, I mean, that's just a losing game to go, I'm just going to go protect the endpoint, right? You really need to complete all of those different uh, enchanted quadrants, as I call them.
1: Yeah, but it's very difficult now in this remote workforce environment.
0: Yeah, because you, uh, well, you, you lose you the network. To, yeah,
1: Right, you lose the network. So how are you going to get the network traffic? You really can only rely on the endpoint. You might get some log data off of it, but where are you going to stream the logs? Right? Yeah. Where are these are logs going to go? Pull the logs right? off
0: of it, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. So this is a really challenging time. So a lot of people are leaning more heavily on the endpoints. I mean, look, CrowdStrike is is a good product as well. Mm. You know, they did an interesting partnership with AutoMox here to kind of integrate not only the endpoint protection, but some patching. Mm -hmm. We see what Qualys is doing with VMDR that's adding vulnerability management detection and some patching into their solution, right? So we're seeing some enhancements here that are trying to help out, which I think are things we should have done years ago. What what I find interesting in the news this week is that all the traditional on-prem guys are scrambling quickly to get mm. solutions out into the marketplace for the remote workforce because they were way behind the curve.
0: Right. Yes. Very much so.
1: Yeah, and CrowdStrike
0: uh, has – so CrowdStrike doesn't do any patching, right? The AutoMox is what would provide the patching. Correct.
1: Yeah, so there's a partnership with between CrowdStrike and AutoMox. AutoMox is now in the CrowdStrike Falcon store that you can download, mm-hmm. integrate in. Uh, so that now gives you endpoint protection and patching capabilities mm-hmm. um, brought together. I think it's a, it's a good partnership, right? Uh, maybe not as advanced as what VMDR is attempting to do from a Qualys mm-hmm. perspective where it's all in one vendor. Mm-hmm. Uh, but still, it helps the CrowdStrike customer base out to give them some patching capabilities
0: yeah no i i, I think that's a, a really great uh partnership um ixia is announcing uh advanced persistent threat emulation and this comes i, I want to ixia bought i think breaking point systems which is where like HD more used to work back in the day and it had some security ties, but it was more about uh, stress testing, right? And they kind of pivoted a little into security. This announcement was seemed very uh, security related.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is your famous attack simulation kind of domain, right? I mean, when mm. we think about it, it's it's looking to simulate different attacks and try to identify what those different campaigns look like. I just, you know, the one thing I I'm, I'm a It's interesting because I haven't seen a lot of activity from Ixia in their, I think it's called their Keysight platform that they use. Mm -hmm. We just haven't seen a lot with them lately. No, we Um, haven't. And and I don't know how many enterprises actually use this technology. I'd be interested from our audience if people are actually using this. I just don't see a lot of it. I haven't seen a lot of it. So I I don't know how broadly this platform is being adopted.
0: Yeah, I I do like the strategy of... Attacking your network in an automated fashion. It doesn't replace things like pen testing or, or a lot of other things that you do, but it's kind of like that automated
1: QA test that's always running. Um, right. You need to augment it. You can't have a pen testing firm doing 24 by 7 pen testing, right? So this is an augmentation. I mean, you could. But you could. <laughs> it's again getting, getting expensive. Yeah.
0: I, I think it's better to automate it and still do your pen tests, right? And I, right. You know, and I think that you know, the chaos monkey from Netflix and that kind of uh, chaos engineering is really somewhat similar to the way you would do breach and attack simulation against your network and your systems, right? When you develop your applications, it's a simi- It's not exactly the same, right? Because um, uh, breach and attack simulation is trying to go in and pivot um, and, and see how far it can get. Um, when I talk to the folks at uh, Verica, which is an early stage startup with some of the engineers that built some of that uh chaos engineering i want to call it chaos theory but it's not that's something totally different uh, the concept of chaos engineering right uh so they have a startup called verica and they were well we talked about some of the parallels between them um and they were very astute in saying look we want to test one piece of the application one functionality right so that we don't cause a cascading Effect So they break it up into very small pieces so that you could test something in production with the right tools in place, which is what Netflix does, right? But when you do breach and attack simulation, you're doing small pieces, but in a series, right? Trying to infect this system. And once they infect this system, go to this next system, right? Um, Because I think there's less chance of an impact of those uh, end user systems and Windows systems from doing that versus
1: an application. See, we don't even need a startup for chaos, we have it right now with COVID-19. You take 100% of your desktops, you yeah, yes. unplug them from the corporate right. network, and you throw them all at home and see if your firewall mm-hmm. continues to hold. Mm-hmm. That's chaos.
0: <laughs> it's true. It's true. Uh, more your VPN concentrators,
1: right? Yes, exactly. Which kind of leads into that twofin article a little yeah. bit, right? I mean, because that's what they're trying to do, right? Is they're trying to help organizations manage this shift from on-prem to at home, and all the firewall rules that need to happen to change. We were mm-hmm. talking about this yesterday, I think, or, or the day before on one of the podcasts, Paul, where you know you take a desktop uh, because some organizations, it was our, our interview with Dick Clark on BSW. Yeah, He said, look, we see three types of approaches. One is they're literally unplugging the corporate network or a corporate PC and giving it to employees to take home and plug in. But he said, now all your firewall rules are messed up because... What was mm-hmm. inside is now outside. And so what Tufin's trying to do, I think, in this announcement is to try to help manage a lot of the firewall rule changes that need to happen to support a big mass exodus from on-prem to remote.
0: Yeah. And if you make a mistake in those firewall rules, it can be devastating, potentially. Uh, someone was sent me an article, I think it was Lee Neely sent me an article about Docker and how... Uh, you know, the the Docker API being exposed to the internet uh, and authentication not being there. I said, well, we do have Docker instances that don't have authentication, but I'm like, they're sectioned off in AWS networking and firewalling configuration. Like, I do really want to put that authentication in there or find a way that doesn't rely on that uh, particular port. But uh, if only like one firewall rule is protecting that, which it's more than one, but uh, if you make a mistake, it could be devastating. For a lot of your services, right?
1: Yep. Yeah, agreed.
0: Um, Let's see. Recorded Future and ServiceNow have a partnership.
1: Yes. Uh, security operations, incident response, analytics, bring it all together. You know, We were just talking about this a little bit. One of the big challenges I think right now for organizations is how am I going to get this log data? How am I going to get this network traffic data? How am I going to correlate it to threat intelligence when a lot of my systems are no longer inside the network? I'm not sure how this partnership helps to solve that. I mean, this makes logical sense because mm. we know what both Recorded Future and ServiceNow have been doing in SOC and incident response and, and those pieces. So at the surface, makes a lot of sense. The question is, are they solving a problem that people are facing right now, or is this back more when we get back to our traditional way of, of doing business?
0: Yeah, I mean, the devil's in the details. They talk about uh, collecting data, triaging alerts, weeding out false positives, prioritizing threats. But exactly how does this partnership help help with that uh, is Missing from this article. Hopefully, there's some follow-on uh, information about it. But I think the devil's in the details, right? How, how is it helping me streamline between these two? I think it has potential.
1: Uh, yep. Certainly. Yep. Definitely. Uh, can we say Redis uh, configuration management? Oh, is it sorry. Redis or Redis? Redis, Redis? I don't, I don't know. I, 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 don't I think know. it's Redis. I don't know. I call it Redis. But it's I, probably I might Redis. Be wrong You're probably right. You've probably heard the term. It doesn't matter. We have different accents in the Northeast. You've
0: probably heard the term more than, more than I have.
1: Um, yeah, maybe.
0: But, but this, it, it, So Redis yeah. is um, uh, message queuing database cache. Did I get that right? I haven't used this technology in a long time. Can you tell it? Because I kind of hesitate. I haven't used uh-huh. it in my, in my applications. And I'm like, it may have been in design meetings like you know, 15 or 20 years ago when I was doing a lot more software development in a different environment. Um, but this is, I, I mean, this is a, a popular application.
1: Yes. It, it allows you to gain, it's, it's a remote dictionary server. Uh, it allows you to gain access to different uh, information. But again, it looks like misconfiguration here. We've seen these before, right? We see all these S3 buckets open. Now we see a bunch of these uh, Redis instances open. It looks like they're not using TLS or they're misconfigured. I mean, this is why configuration management matters because it it doesn't take a lot to configure something incorrectly to expose it to the entire internet.
0: Yeah, and without any... Password authentic. I mean, that's basically like leaving your database open. I mean, this mm-hmm. the Redis servers have access to the database, right? It's that abstraction layer between your database and your application. So you're not putting SQL calls inside your application. You're calling the Redis server. So I mean, you might as well just have your database wide open to the internet because that's not going to cause any problems.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's just this is like telnet. Right? I mean I mean it it's plain tack, pretty much. Yeah. I mean unless you go into SSH or something, it right? It sounds I, like I it's similar exactly to the same thing. It sounds
0: yeah. like it's similar to the Docker uh, API, right, on twenty three seventy five. Uh, if it's doesn't have authentication it's like having telnet with no password and people can go in there and upload new containers and remove containers and and do all that stuff sounds like it's pretty similar with a redis server if there's no authentication and there's no tls it means anyone can access it and start doing stuff which means if i'm an attacker i'm maybe going to implant something that uh is siphoning off all the data from all of your calls from your applications right which could include sensitive data um so
1: yep I, it's bad yeah so uh, did you read the CyberArk article on this whole secrets management piece? Now, this is part of the, the Conjure acquisition, I believe, is where this functionality comes from. Did you, you kind of dig in deep into this one? Because we've been talking a lot about secrets management uh, with some of our code and stuff. I was curious whether you saw some value here in what they were trying to do.
0: It, it, the secrets management is, is interesting. I, I wasn't sure what they meant by self-service. Uh, And how you control that. Also, secrets are uh, there's many different types of secrets, and it's not always clear how you manage them. So, for example, there's application to application secrets. In other words, if my one application needs to talk on behalf of my users to another API from another application, those are much easier. Those are, I mean, it's pretty well documented how you secure those, right? Because it's, it's one set of keys for the application. Where I'm struggling with is what if you've got users registering, right? Multiple users registering in your application, and each one of those users needs to have a separate pair of uh, API keys that gives them access to one of their applications, right? How do you store those secrets, <laughs> Because it's not just one for the app; it's one for every use, one set for every user. So you can't use it, and I mean, a lot of the articles will point you to environment variables. Which, I mean, if you're managing them correctly and keeping them on a Git isn't a horrible thing. Um, a secrets vault is much better. There are also issues with the API gateway. A lot of people say, "Well, just use the API gateway," but the bug that you're going to run into is the same one that hit was at Bank of America. Where the EC2 instance had access to that key, which gave them access to S3. Same thing with the API gateway. That key gives you access to the API gateway. So, well, you don't need a secret in your app. The secret's in that hidden uh, HTTP web server that's on uh, Amazon Services. Um, So that's not a. To me, that's not a valid approach either. Uh, So it's still. It depends on your app and your use case, right? I'm still struggling with the per user keys and
1: how you how you store those. Got it. This one looks like it's a combination of their privileged access security solution where they centralize the, the um, credentials and their application access manager's dynamic access provider, which mm-hmm. is supported through Red Hat OpenShift, Pivotal, or Kubernetes. So I think this is very application specific. Sure. Which is um, the more common trying- use case. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what this looks like. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, I think having a, a vault it, but it's like at what point? Like, how big does your application need to grow before you start implementing a vault? Right.
1: True, but if you're starting to run Kubernetes, oh yeah, you've in got containerized your, environment. You, you're there. You're there. You're
0: <laughs> a, you're far way down that road, right? You should have had a vault a long time ago, right? Uh, in right. En- enterprise we, applications, yeah.
1: Because we have this conversation internally. Should we use Kubernetes? Do we need Kubernetes? See, so we're right at the cusp, right? And we're having these conversations about vaults and secrets and stuff, right? But as yeah. soon as you go over to the Kubernetes side, I, I think you're there.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I,
1: and, you know, I,
0: I think that putting the conversations with application design and development in the context of like just how large is your application and what the use cases are. Is it, on one end of the spectrum, a tool that you're going to let people download and use on their own? right? So it's a single user, multiple instance application. Is it a small application for a small subset of users and you only have a few of them? Then you start scaling up from there and you start getting into larger enterprises that are deploying thousands of containers, right? Uh, And and that's where a lot of these much larger technologies uh, come in, where you need solutions for all of these different junctures. You need a solution for uh, managing your keys, right? You need a solution for deploying and scaling out all of your containers you need a solution that is going to allow you to roll out changes into production in a specific way right um maybe by feature right um i, I was actually talking uh with uh, the folks from what did i say their company name was uh no yeah, i can't v- uh, verica thank you verica. Uh, about some was- of these things because they've worked on the larger enterprise team so they're. Their minds are are in that, you know, the Fortune 1000, Fortune 2000 companies um, have these issues and are looking at these solutions. When I look at them for different use cases, I'm like, well, you have to be at a certain level. At some point, we need to create like a matrix, right? (laughs) Of like where you should be with your various technologies, uh, design and security of your apps.
1: So not only do I need to do our categories, now I have to do like based on where you are maturity and or capabilities, which ones you need and don't need? Yeah.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, because, you know, and I I also think that, you know, we can't lose sight of the fact that enterprises may take off-the-shelf software and be packaging it and deploying it, which is very different from writing your own application, which is very different from SaaS, right? And then, you know, I think small, mid-enterprises may have a couple of applications they develop on their own, but may also package and deploy maybe some open-source software, right? And so how do you manage it do you need kubernetes for that i'm not sure
1: yeah right that's true so, like i said as soon as you go to kubernetes the the complexity changes very very quickly in your applications yeah, yeah. for sure
0: um Algo uh, algosec has released a new version um i think this is similar
1: to the twofin i think so too announcement yeah. right it's just trying to manage uh, some of these uh, network and, and firewall and other devices um, across this this environment where it used to be heavily on-prem and now it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, welcome to the cloud, folks.
0: <laughs> yep. uh, Unisys always-on access powered by Stealth provides fast encryption for remote workers.
1: Yeah, so this is a, back to your endpoint discussion, right? Both this one and the BitDamn one are interesting, right? And that um, I I don't know how many people are using stealth. It, it seemed to be a very interesting technology when it first came out, um, but there was a lot of people who were like, "Eh, I, I don't know how well it works." What they're doing is leveraging that technology now. It looks like on the end. So what is what is stealth? Stealth was this way to kind of um, isolate or, or or kind of make end. Uh, devices invisible on the network. I don't know. I can't remember exactly how it worked. Oh, yeah. There was a startup
0: that was trying to do that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Make them invisible on the network. Yes. I can't remember the name of the startup, but it was like it comes on the network and it's not visible to anything and you set policies of what it can connect to and nothing else can see it kind of thing.
1: Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So what they've done is it looks like they've ported that technology to some endpoint capabilities to also potentially protect these remote uh, workforce uh, PCs and, and devices mm-hmm. as well interesting because think about this if you're an attacker but you can't really see the device does it give you right. some additional or if you're on the device and can't,
0: you can't see anything else on the network right, yeah, right. it's kind of interesting
1: yeah it's kind of interesting I just don't know how well this works I don't know how many people have actually used this technology yeah, it, it sounds really... interesting but mm, agreed. I don't know it's adoption right well cool that will then, round
0: out Oh, sorry one more
1: I was going to say the bit damn one obviously is is around all the communication stuff with all the oh, you know the video conferencing stuff that's Yeah and I wasn't on. sure
0: how it was going to support like what it provides for Teams and Zooms I, I don't know either Above any other I mean quarantining malicious files and uh, all that stuff like I I don't know how specific are they just using Teams and Zooms as a way a Zoom as a way to garner attention because I would think that if you're protecting from malicious files and quarantining them. That should extend to a lot of different applications,
1: not just. Which means all they've done is added support for Teams and Zoom just because of the recent news announcements. Okay, I, but still, I, I'm not not quite sure yeah. how that. Yeah. In
0: in I mean a lot, with Zoom we have you very rarely share a file over Zoom. Right. I don't even know if you can do that with Zoom. It's pretty funny when we have all these zoom calls for the family and they're like, how's it work? I'm like, I don't know. There's someone at a other computer. when I'm when I'm doing this remotely, I don't really use zoom that. I mean, for, uh, you know, just meetings here, but, uh, right. I don't get into any of the advanced features that
1: so just do a call with, uh, with someone. So
0: I've been digging in yeah, a little you more. Do a, you do <laughs> a
1: share, right? You do a video, sh- you know, can share your right. screen, but I don't, I don't know that you can send files over it. You can chat through it. I know that. Mm-hmm. I don't, I
0: don't know. And all of those chats apparently are sent to the organizer. I, I, and really, I mean, just to speak to Zoom and Teams and all of these different technologies, um, you have to understand how or if various aspects are protected, right, and what they are. Uh, it's, I don't think that any of them are necessarily more insecure or secure than the next. It's your responsibility as an enterprise, in this case, to understand uh, how everything is configured and put together, to understand that, hey, when you chat, the organizer can see all of your chats, right? Very same of it mutes you when you're on the call, know how to use your mute button, uh, set the password on it so no one else can join. You just, you need a process for your tools and understand how they're deployed in their default uh, manner and use them accordingly all righty well that will round out the news for this week stay tuned uh interviews coming up next Detecting and responding to threats in the cloud is harder than doing it on-prem. Even when you do have the visibility you need, legacy security workflows weren't designed for the speed and complexity of cloud environments. Cloud-native security solutions from ExtraHop are purpose-built to spot threats across the hybrid attack surface, provide detailed investigation steps, and help you automate response. Request your 30-day free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. Welcome back, everyone, to Enterprise Security Weekly. I have an announcement, but my keyboard was too far away. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, is your open source code secure? Learn how to verify your code during development and not after the build in our next webcast with Synopsys. Register uh, for it by going to securityweekly.com forward slash webcasts. Um, I'll be talking about actually how to securely build uh, containers, uh, which is, the I think, the first step into... Uh, How you do software composition analysis is reducing your footprint. So we'll talk about how to reduce your footprint and then how to analyze what you've built. Uh, So it's going to be a lot of fun. Make sure you check it out. Securityweekly.com forward slash webcast. Here with me today for this interview, Farah Mavatuna, the founder and CEO of NetSparker. No stranger to the show. Farah, welcome.
2: Hey, Paul. Thanks a lot for having me. It's, It's nice to be back. Yes,
0: Nice to have you uh, here on the show. Uh, We're going to talk about time to value in app security, which uh, this one really resonates with me, right? Because I've been doing app security scanning since the old days, like early 2000s, right? Where you could churn through a scan over and over again and going from the scan has completed to what was the actual value of those results and what impact did it have? Um, Back then was, was a chore right? Today we have a, a much better technology and processes and I think much better awareness about application security, um, but still challenges. So uh, Farah, what what are some uh, ways to kind of frame the conversation in that time to value for application security?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I think I'm mostly, you know, time to value in terms of especially in big organizations is a huge deal, right? So you can get scanning and you can get results and then you got now a couple of problems like first of all your results need to be actionable so you can prove that you're actually improving stuff and you do improve stuff so it's not just hey i reviewed 100 issues and i don't know i fixed like one thing and yeah, you know, it's obviously not that good but also kind of the challenge becomes significantly bigger as you go into bigger organizations with hundreds, if not thousands of applications, because now you are facing this very, very hot challenge of, hey, you have a budget, you have a project, your mission is secure to web applications, uh, but like, how do you even get started? And majority of the applications, which I think is very important to understand, so majority of the organizations, they only secure their mission critical, like 10, 50, 100 applications with a good enough process so meaning there may be hundreds if not thousands of applications is kind of you know doing stuff but not really getting anywhere so a lot of of these organizations are trying to do hey okay i can do this for 10 websites but how do you even do that for hundreds and if not thousands and is that even possible and when they started to approach it from the generally mostly accepted best practice They realize after a year or so, it doesn't really work out because it took them 18 months to get anywhere, and in between, they got, like, they need to prove to management that they are doing something, they are getting results, but also they need to prove their teams, developers, security people, and all of that, this stuff is actually working, and we are getting somewhere, and that's not really generally happening.
0: Well. When you try and scale Fera um, from protecting the the core set of applications to the thousands of applications you may have, um, wh- where does SAST kind of fall down, and how does it need to morph and be truly effective, and then you know kind of also coupled with uh, scanning as well?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a very good point. So, like, if you think about SAST, um, SAST is kind of if you think about development. SAST is pretty much the first place. It's right after the design. So, you know, your design needs to be secure, and it's unlikely to see any modern applications actually secure that design level. It doesn't happen, right? Not, not that often. If you are a big company, majority of your applications already designed by the time you're thinking about security. If you're a small company, well, you don't think about security. So it's kind of, if you're a big company and building any product, then you might be thinking about security by design, or if your product is very, security oriented so the mm. security comes to question like very first thing but right after the design first thing you get to do, writing the code and suss is that you know the ideally you wouldn't and shouldn't introduce new vulnerabilities as you right and if you get the suss right from the beginning that's fantastic your application will be secure from the like the moment you press deploy almost like in theory right there's the practice and all of that mm-hmm. but in theory this works quite well So where this gets super challenging is real world and a lot of security managers, security engineers challenge. Hey, look, I'm not building one new application. I'm not even building five new applications. I am building not only hundreds of new applications, but I also maintain thousands of applications. And, you know, hundreds of them are like mission critical, needs to be up, needs to be secure, um, has private data and all of that. And then the others that, I care about less, but it's still my brand. It's still data, maybe not that sensitive data. So if you're in the second bucket, and a lot of big organizations are there, they already have applications in the wild. They already got a massive fingerprint in the world exposed to the Internet, also in in the internal network. And now they say, okay, we now realize web application security is a bigger problem than we we anticipated, or like, you know, we thought. Now we need to address that. But unlike network security, they got less stuff for application security with experience. They got they are lacking best practice, especially organizational best practice, but as well as even industrial best practice. Because web application best practices simply almost doesn't exist. You know, you got best practice approaches, but no one really have an established or defined best practice at scale.
0: So yeah, and the, then, the challenge hmm. that I, when you describe that for with SaaS that I see is even within one application, you may have two or three different languages that you have to support, right? Mm-hmm. And let alone now you've got thousands of applications, you probably have at least half a dozen, probably more languages in there that have to be analyzed for vulnerabilities. And how do you do that in a standard manner? Uh, and also, it falls on the developers, right? They may have a couple of different languages in their own application. Uh, and how do you treat each, you know, vulnerability you're finding in all of those different languages and train your developers not just in one language, but multiple, right? I mean, Python, JavaScript, Java. I mean, even if you look at CSS and in, in HTML as a language, right, that could you know, introduce vulnerabilities, all that has to be taken into account.
2: Oh, there is there is fair amount of complexity and you know one thing i'm kind of digressing here but one thing i think super important because I, I keep hearing people saying educate your you know developers educate your developers by all means do educate your developers it's very crucial for them to understand security but if you expect them to um, just understand security at a level even your junior application security people do you are mistaken that's never gonna happen yeah there are just so many so much crap in application security and in all other security fields that a developer doesn't have time or need to understand yet it's going to get you hacked Mm -hmm. so this is just a fact and and you know to say oh developers need to be trained and if you think that's going to address all of your problems you are mistaking no that's just part of the puzzle that's an important part of the puzzle Mm -hmm. it's not going to solve your problems because particularly if you look at client-side security, you know, complex server-side security problems, these are, like, so easy to overlook, and a normal developer in no shape or form would can be expected to keep up with that madness or oh, yeah. the complexity no, of application security at that level. But mm-hmm. you want them to cover that 80% one-on-one of security, and the rest still needs to be automation, security teams, and bunch of fantasy. No,
0: I agree. It helps reduce your attack
1: surface, but it's not the answer. Matt?
2: Right. And these, look, a
1: developer doesn't even know all the components of some of these applications anymore. They have their specific yep. kind of purview of the code that they're working on. And, and the most they can understand is, is their component. Then you, you have these distributed teams all over the place building the other components. You don't understand how some of these interactions happen. It's a really
2: complex problem. Mm-hmm. Oh, that is is such a good point. Uh, What we have seen recently, we have seen, oh, we are testing this one website, but did you know that one website also connected to 50 services and microservices? Yeah. And all of those also developed by other teams? Did you know that? Do you you understand interactions in between? But all needs to be tested. And again, it creates like an extra level of complexity. So... If you kind of take that very complex environment and if you put yourself in the shoes of um, someone who needs, who is in charge of application security in that kind of organization with thousands of applications, 1000 of applications, let's say, and like about 50 machine critical applications. Now, the big question is you got a mission maybe directly from the CISO says, hey, like everyone is hacking right and left from the over their web applications. They build our network security very well over maybe one and a half decade in big organizations, right? They got massive experience on network security. I'm not saying they sold it 100%, but it's well understood, well invested. And even the security teams on network security is generally well beefed up with experienced people as well. You know, people with even 20 years of experience in network security because how old that part of the industry is. But when you're looking at your application security side of the game, you're gonna see significantly smaller team, less understood environment, less invested tooling, less invested system or procedures and all of that. Even the vendor wise, like, you know, everyone is still. Um, in network security, even when you go, whatever you go, there's kind of like two, three very well-established players, and you can almost go either way, and they will be maybe ten percent, five percent better or worse. We don't even have that in application security. There's like massive True. difference between vendors and all of that.
0: Yeah, and we were so, just talking in the previous segment about right. how you might have, uh, you know, you're a software company producing a product, right? you're in a uh, enterprise smaller enterprise you may be using off the shelf commercial open source software deploying that out maybe having a couple of your own applications you know all the way up as you start to grow into the fortune 1000 2000 now you've got huge enterprise teams with thousands of applications the solutions that you choose to provide security for your applications at any level vary so greatly right and like when is the time to go get something like a Kubernetes, and then how do we secure it, right? When is the time to introduce a Redis server, which we were just talking about, and how do we secure it, right? And so we're all on this kind of journey, and at different points, you need different solutions. But what I like about um, the uh, dynamic application scanning, right, the the scanners, is it can test authentication, right? At, At a lot of junctures, it doesn't matter what what code is behind it, what database, what what technology, I can test authentication, right? And I can do that in a very uniform way. Now, of course, you can detect what language and frameworks might be used as well uh, and that's a benefit um, but authentication is authentication, right? So, we can run those tests and we don't have to have developers learning how to provide authentication in six different languages. We still need that but probably someone's going to make a mistake somewhere if you have a thousand applications, right?
2: You no, know, very, very good point. So, you know hence when you have that environment now the question becomes okay if you we were to start in like greenfield kind of project new project SAST is your starting point mm-hmm. but the conversation becomes if you're in this environment with hundreds of applications and then you got this mission to secure these applications with a small team and possibly a limited budget like what what do you do you can pick your fight and say "Hey, i'm gonna go SaaS, SCA, and all of that on the pipeline in hundreds of applications. Well, good luck with that because even defining and getting the context and figuring out all your source codes in which pipeline, which with you know integration is going to take months in that kind of organization. Mm-hmm. And so, the point being, the approach is being: Hey, look, you got to prove. And not only prove you got to actually move and making progress on your security. And the way to do that, if you start from the dynamic, then what you're gonna do? Hey, today I am putting my one thousand application, and tomorrow I already know which one of them can be hackable, for a fact. You know, with, with something like NetSparker, and it is unique to NetSparker anyway, is proving a vulnerability exists with one hundred percent, and not having any risk of being a false positive. So that automatically changes the game because you can put your 1000 applications tomorrow it will tell you which 50 of them are hackable right now because there's a proven let's say sql injection or local file inclusion or whatnot in those applications now you've got a clear prioritization and progress and at this point which is the second part of the puzzle Okay, I've got, let's say, you know, 1,000 issues that needs to be fixed, and it's prioritized, which is very easy to get there. It takes about a week, almost. But now the bigger challenge begins, how do I get it fixed? Mm. And this is where you come into the integration, because you cannot just send developers noise. But if you send them actual vulnerabilities, and actual vulnerabilities only with 100% accuracy, without needing your security team double-checking everything, now you remove the bottleneck of five people security team to secure thousand application, and then offloaded—not offloaded, but integrated that into the developers' daily work into their Jira or whatever the bug tracking they are using. So what we discovered over the years, and we have been doing this for like five years with this kind of organizations, this is the magic, magic solution to this problem: get the vulnerabilities prove them they are real automatically, remove the security team from the middle, pass the real proven vulnerability to developers with enough information to address. And when they fix it, automatically verify the fixes. And you can see now this stuff just works. And now your time to value is so short, it's unbelievable. It's unimaginable. When we talk and deliver this with organizations, their whole application security model the the way they think what was possible changes you've you've always had a great
0: integration with ticketing systems uh and you've had that for a long time uh in jira is the most popular platform right and i'm sure you've run into the situation where you've uh implemented this project it's scanning it creates jira tickets But what about the developers that are going to come in the next morning, right? And, you know, they may know in their head, like, I've got a few, you know, half a dozen Jira tickets to uh, process today. And this is what my day is going to look like. And then they log into Jira and they've got 10 additional tickets and they're all security (laughs) vulnerabilities. What's the the process for managing that, right? Because technology... They need those 10 tickets, right? But there's a, a process in a, at a personal level. How do you prepare and coach developers to go? You're, you're going to get tickets now. They're going to be security related, and here's how we're going to handle them.
2: No, that's a, that's a very good point, and it's one of the organizational challenges. We generally work with the security teams to kind of define where they want to start from, and majority of them want to start from like very high-level stuff. Yep. So they say, hey, look, if anything is critical, I just want to inject this into the team. Mm-hmm. and they can build SLAs around this kind of stuff, uh, especially on their ticketing side as well. And within the organization, and this kind of changes organization to organization, mm-hmm. some of them bake this into their sprint. So they say, hey, X, X percentage of the utilization of a developer will go into these support issues. And they escalate it as like a site reliability problem. So, hey, I've got a production system that needs to be fixed. So it's urgent, needs mm-hmm. to be addressed. And again, depending on the maturity of the organization, how they already can react to that kind of risks, or they generally got already a security handling policy around the bug crowd or, you know, like bug yep. band kind of platform mm-hmm. integrations or the external reports just from, you know, white hat band or all that. And if that's mature enough, we just bake into it because it makes sense. But at the end of the day, you know, I in my experience, I don't think developers get uh, agitated or angry or upset about actual findings they need to be fixing. Because mm-hmm. majority of the time, they're somehow responsible for that anyway. Or they introduce it themselves.
0: Right, I've been there. And,
2: and that's no, a very legitimate bug, and it's a critical bug, and mm-hmm. they do understand it. But they're really, really upset if you send them noise, Yes. and they spent one hour only to figure out none of this stuff is actionable.
0: That's the Then worst. the next
2: time you send it, you know, they will send you an angry email yeah. as you, you know, yeah. you'll be in the security team. And no, that's going to go real quick and it's going to mm. be escalated to managers real quick, which we yeah. have, but, again, but, seen it so many times when it's implemented that
3: way.
1: Yeah, we have history of this on the device vulnerability management side, right? I mean, this is the same analogy we had with the IT folks, right? We would go out, we'd scan, we'd find a vulnerability, we'd throw it over the fence, mm-hmm. they have to go patch. Then there would be a fight whether the patch was applied or not applied. You know, and it's taken us how many years, I mean, how many decades, to get to the point where we are now starting to see some of the, vulner- the just the traditional device vulnerability management solutions start to integrate some of this prioritization themselves. It sounds like NetSparker has been ahead of this curve on the application side because you're right, if we're not integrating the right data and the the ability for them to take action easily, then they're not going to do it. And then we're going to end up in this fight like we see between security and IT when it comes to the device vulnerability.
2: Absolutely same. It, it just it still repeats itself, right? I and mean, it doesn't seem like you know, we are learning much. But funny enough, as you said, even network security side of the game is almost catching up to this automation. You know, If you, if you look at network security products, not that I'm an expert on the field, Uh, But me seeing some pitches and new products and some products innovating and all of that, I am seeing, oh, great, they got like better workflow now, which is kind of funny because there's been a problem more than two decades in this industry. And now we only started to see proper workflow in the last maybe two, three years. And before that, it was most like, hey, let me create you a ticket. Now it's your problem.
0: One of the the things that I really want, um, if I put my application developer hat on, is. When a, something in the process, you know, whether it be a dynamic scanner or not, it would certainly has this capability, identifies a framework or library that is in my application that's vulnerable, right? I want some automation behind that. I want you to go back into my build system. I want you to tell it that hey, you should be on this version, not that version. I want you to build an instance of that application. Run it through regression testing and QA testing. Then, if it passes, then I want the notification and I want to see the report that says, "Hey, vulnerability was found. We upgraded it. We ran through tests and it passed." Like, do you want to push this into the next phase? Kind of thing. It, do people have uh, organizations have some of that level of uh, automation?
2: So actually, I've seen that in I think one of the SCA tools. I uh, mm. got a GitLab integration. That's like. Literally, you know, uh, submitting a patch to do actual right. source code. Yeah. Right. Uh, I forgot the tool name. To be honest, I thought it was critical. Cool. Um, I haven't seen that automation in real organizations today. I think we're gonna slowly get that in fixable problems as mm-hmm. straightforward as you mentioned. Like, right. hey, if it's just upgrading, it will be just, hey, here is the pull pull request, and like you go ahead and do what you wanna do. Right. And right. there there will be always cases say we won't we won't merge it and all of that. Uh, but the thing is, I think that's where everyone is trying to get at, like mm. how much we can automate this stuff. And we're only too late to that game. And yeah. you know, and I believe like as Net Spark, we are the frontiers in that automation guide, because we we automated so much that no one has done before us and still haven't done stuff like automating um, verification of vulnerabilities, which is, you know, we talk about triage in, in Bounty, and it's kind of funny. I, I read like this Bounty research and people talking about oh, auto triage and all of that. And I'm like, yeah, like 10 years ago, we did that. You know, we didn't call it auto triage, but like that's literally what we have been doing for the last 10 years and, and improving that technology. And, you know, our workflow, as we discussed, again, you know, we built in 2015. Uh, we built two-way back-ticketing kind of integration with the verification of deployed patches, mm-hmm. deployed fixes. And, you know, and it goes on the list of that because, like, our simple motto approaching to the security, hey, if something can be automated, we had to automate it. Because there's only limited amount of security people with limited amount of skill sets they must use their knowledge and skill set only to problems that only humans can solve. Hence, one of the reasons we launched a machine learning and AI department. Uh, now we are developing features on that front because, like, you know, when I started this in 2006, developing NetSparker, there were problems I knew could have been solved with AI, mm-hmm. but for at the time, developing such a solution was itself was almost like a bunch of developers. Right. But today, it's so much more accessible, and everything on that front is much developed. Now, we're like, hey, we can actually do this. And I can, like, I might be looking at tickets, years created, you know, created nine years ago, and we're like, oh, now it's on a roadmap. <laughs> it right, was on a right. like, backlog.
0: Uh, that's really odd. Yeah, I mean, it it's almost, it's similar to that chaos engineering, right? I want something that has as much intelligence as possible to run around, find actual problems, and then tell people that can fix them. Uh, It is a very simple concept.
1: A a library upgrade, probably pretty straightforward to automate. Mm. A SQL injection, probably a lot more (laughs) difficult to automate. But if you could, I mean, think about it. If you found a SQL injection vulnerability that you could then figure out how to update the source code to fix that (laughs) problem, what what a great day for for application security, but that's a much harder problem to solve than maybe just a standard uh, framework or library update. Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I think I think we're not going to see that anytime soon. I have seen some Sust actually suggesting fixes, which is a good start. Uh, but in real world, like the the languages frameworks, is super complex. You know, originally when I thought about this problem, uh, my you know my approach would be. Actually, having better frameworks and better standardization between among the frameworks, like web application frameworks. But unfortunately, framework developers again, surprise, surprise, don't care about security. And they start with accessibility and a bunch of other problems that right. they want to solve. And security still almost always an afterthought. And we're repeatedly seeing Ruby on Rails, .NET, adapted MVC, all of that, constantly introducing like dumb vulnerabilities. And not having proper configurations for very obvious problems to solve that can be solved very easily, only to be added 10 years after the frameworks in Mansion. Yeah. So, you know, 10 years ago, everyone knew that, they just didn't care. So, it's kind of a shame it's such a slow progress world on the developer side while majority of these problems would have been fixed at framework level so much easily but I, I doubt it will ever happen to be honest you know yeah because it's year. it's such a
0: moving target right like if there's a vulnerability in the application and something suggests a fix that's really just saving me the time to go out to Stack Overflow to do some research to figure out how I fix it, take someone else's example and then modify it so it works with my own code and do the own sanity check of is that really a secure solution or not, which a lot of developers probably aren't doing, right? Or you know, need some training to get to that point. But then the next version of the framework comes out where you go to a different language and that, you know, that whole process repeats itself. And even with newer uh, frameworks and languages, there's three different ways to solve every kind of problem, right? And which one is best for me and which one is balancing that usability and security and maintainability. In in all those factors, it's it's really hard to suggest a fix to a developer.
2: Oh, absolutely. Like, I mean, there's a very clear statistical correlation between framework and vulnerabilities identified in applications. Mm. And if you... If you don't know anything, you can just look at .NET and PHP. Right. And you can see certain kind of vulnerabilities only exist in PHP or only exist in .NET. Yep. And it's just because, hey, while they are building .NET framework, this is the design decision they made. And mm-hmm. by default, it made it secure. Or in PHP, they did this, and by default, it made it insecure. Right. Or even the decisions like magic quotes, kind of crazy decisions, PHP... Are taken back in the day, and yeah. later on realize, oh, this was a dumb idea. Let's yeah, movies. they've backed so off like, on
0: a lot of those. Actually, the newer <laughs> the newer versions of PHP are a significant not that it's saying much, but significantly better than the older versions. Right? Older versions are really bad.
2: Absolutely, like the older versions of PHP from a security point of view, like as a pen tester, oh, if like I start you know back in and, the day, uh, yeah. if I see a website, oh PHP, let's let's have the fun begin, kind of right, right you know. Right. But, there will be something. It, it was just so hard to make that stuff secure back in the day. Right. It's much better, but as we said, like it took maybe 10 years to get there, which yeah. is a shame.
0: That's why when I deploy open source applications, I do it with a, a CI-CD pipeline that lets me upgrade all of my frameworks, including PHP, to the latest version, test my app. If it's good, I push it out. Um, That's where I think ops uh, teams need to get to. Developers need to be there too. I mean, hopefully they're not in an enterprise on PHP, right? But uh, automating those framework uh, updates uh, and changing your code um, is, is hugely helpful.
2: Oh, yeah. Or you can do what Facebook does, right? Hey, I am on PHP. I'm just going to write my own compiler. (laughs) So that's a step. Yeah, Yeah. I mean,
0: you could do that. I mean, if if you have an organization large enough to to do that, (laughs) I mean, the decisions we make are, you know, can we implement authentication better than the services that are provided in AWS? Even with a pretty large dev team... Probably not, and even if you could, do you really want to put all those resources into doing that? I mean, Facebook's obviously made that decision for PHP, but I, to me, that's a that's a unicorn, right? That's not most enterprises.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. That you know, uh, that's kind of it's unrealistic by all means, and there are like maybe a couple of companies who can afford that, and even yeah. then, I don't even know if it makes sense. They got right. other reasons to do that, so I get it, but. Yeah, like, you know, PHP kind of stuff in the long term that as an enterprise, just not suitable. You need, you need better support. To be honest, even Java world is kind of burned by that in the end. And right. we don't know what's going to happen to other frameworks. But you can see the technology is always a phasing thing and keep changing. As you said, definitely moving targets. Yep. Vera, one last
1: question I have is what kind of metrics are you seeing people using to try to measure this time to value from an application security perspective. You know, what, what are some of those measurements you, you're seeing from your customer base? Just to help others kind of get an idea of what should they be measuring to understand whether they're being successful or not?
2: Yeah, yeah, good point. So like a couple of things that we have been focusing with, you know, and our customers. Uh, time to fix is one of the values, kind of see how quick you are, how agile you are when you send a ticket, a critical vulnerability, does it take like 10 days to deploy the fix or is it the same day? So it's like, again, uh, based on especially the critical of the application, so time to fix is important. Another metric is again, how many vulnerabilities you are introducing versus fixing. So are you getting better or worse in terms of like your trending? You know, obviously you want to get better. And we also, for example, our grouping system among the websites. So you imagine you have a team in, in, you know, in East Coast, another team in West Coast, and they got like different majors, different processes, whatnot. And now you can kind of benchmark them and say, hey, my team in East Coast introducing more vulnerabilities than my team in, in West Coast, despite of having that you know, same kind of output in terms of code. And then you can say, oh, you know, I should definitely get like secure coding training for this thing. Because clearly they are still introducing the same vulnerability. Despite of fixing, they still don't fix the root cause. So I believe these are like really key things. How much, how many vulnerabilities you're introducing? How many uh, vulnerabilities you are fixing? How quick you are fixing the vulnerabilities that you find? And then not necessarily a metric, but kind of to do all of this, the one important you know step that do you even know what you have, which is like the whole discovery piece. You need to understand your internal and external exposure. Because then you can say, hey, I've got one hundred applications and you know in each application on average I've got only maybe 0.5, 0.5 critical vulnerabilities. But fifty applications that you don't even know exists, maybe is just like horrible. And you only realize, oh, I got hacked. I didn't know I had that website. So, you know, the point being before tracking the metrics, you need to understand the assets and the inventory. And again, like very, you know, a network security world kind of conversation, right? Like you gotta get your assets management right. Only after that, you will get value from your vulnerability management.
1: Yeah, no, that's good. I I mean, look, I think understanding what applications you have out there is a huge challenge for every organization because there's just so much stuff out there. Um, So if you can get your arms around that, that at least gives you a starting point. You know what you have. Um, But those other two metrics, I think were interesting, right? It's time to fix. And and are you fixing more vulnerabilities than than you're introducing? Mm. That at least gives you some valid metrics to understand, kind of, are you charting in the right way? absolutely farah thank you so much for appearing on enterprise
0: security weekly it's always wonderful having you on our shows folks that want to learn more about Netsparker can go to securityweekly.com forward slash netsparker farah thanks again
2: hey thanks a lot thank you
0: and that will we are we going to end the show or transition to the next interview i think it's the pre-recorded uh interview with uh, ken security stay tuned with AI Hunter. Sign
1: up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACM. Welcome to Security Weekly. I'm your host, Matt Alderman. We are recording live on day three of RSA Conference 2020. We're in Broadcast Alley in Moscone West. And joining me for this interview is a really good friend, Ed Bellis, co-founder, chief technology officer at Kenneth Security. Welcome. Thank you very much, Matt. Thank you for having me. Uh, Pleasure. Pleasure. Um, you, You know, when I talk about Kenna Security, I remember the early days. Yeah. You were a customer at Qualys way back in the day. You were, at, I think, at Orbitz at the That's time. That's right. yeah. 2009, I remember meeting yeah. you, and then you went off and, and, and started this whole thing that is now Kenna Security. Uh, and so it's great to have watched the progress of Kenna over the years. I have a ton of respect for the team, as you know, um, and what you guys have built uh let's start a little bit any updates on Kenna security first like you want to share with with people because I, I saw you guys did a press release I think last week or earlier That's this right. week I can't remember my weeks kind of merge with RSA conference but just tremendous continued growth yeah so absolutely. What you guys are
3: doing. yeah we put out a press release I I I think you're right, I think it was last week. Um, but just talking about the growth, we did over 80% growth again uh, last year. We continue to have a lot of success in the mid and large enterprise. We uh, established a, part- a big partnership with VMware, mm-hmm. uh, where we're sitting inside of App Defense and uh, providing vulnerability information, as well as scoring and prioritization for the vulnerabilities that all uh, reside within App Defense as well. Uh, we did some partnerships um, Uh, Who was the the other big one we did? uh, We're we're working on some things with, um, I I think, I want to say it was Avanti um, that, that we did a little bit with as well. Um, we raised our Series D, uh, as you might know. Yes, uh, we covered by, that. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah so Sorenson Capital came in, Ken Elephant is now uh, on our board, he's been great. Uh, we also brought in uh, City Ventures and HSBC who actually converted from, they started as a customer and then ultimately became uh, an investor in Ken as well in that last round. That's great. Yeah.
1: Now, when we think about medium to large enterprise, kind of your sweet spot, um, they're still struggling with traditional vulnerability management at the end of the day, right? They most certainly
3: are. They right? Certainly.
1: I, look, I've worked for two of the big three. Everybody knows this. I, it, 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 there's no secret, right? But this has been a challenge for a long time, 15 plus years of how do you prioritize the right vulnerabilities to drive the right remediation activities in organizations, small, medium, too large, yeah. right? But when you think about large organizations, 10,000 plus devices, up to millions of devices, yep. This the scale of, of what they have to deal with is massive. What do organizations need to look at, right? To kind of get a better investment on their VM solutions mm. and drive to better prioritization, better actionability out of that data.
3: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. In fact, we did a joint study with uh, Scientia Research recently. And one of the things that we had looked at was was their actual remediation capacity, right? Mm. Is All right, how many vulnerabilities can you actually remediate as they're thrown at you? And then we look at that and we also look at critical vulnerabilities. And in the report section, we were actually defining critical as anything where we know about some sort of weaponized exploits or we're seeing some sort of exploitations in the wild. So the likelihood of something happening goes up. Uh, In any given company, the the interesting stat was whether they were really small, 100 assets, or they had a million assets across the board, it was roughly one in 10 they could fix, right? One in 10. One in 10, so 10%. We measured all the way up to the top performers, the very best of the best were about one in four, 25%. Nobody could do more than that, no matter the size of the organization, which is really interesting. So if you're going to only fix, at best, 25% of your volumes, you got to be pretty picky and choosy about which ones you're going to do because those better be the ones that don't uh, end up in some sort of an event. So I'm curious, capacity, Mm -hmm. what limits that capacity?
1: Is it just resources or... Maybe we don't have the right tooling and automation and workflows to do yeah. this more efficiently because ten to twenty-five percent is pretty low, is. considering the number of vulnerabilities that a vulnerability scanner will return. And, and to your point, if if I can't really identify the highest priorities, you know that
3: that's scary. But what's the limitations on the capacity? Did you sure. cover that at we, all? We did actually in volume four, which was the most recent volume. Uh, we took a lot of the data that we were looking at just in terms of the outcome metrics, like how mm-hmm. how much remediation they're they're actually doing, how quickly they're remediating, things like that. And we combined it with the software metrics that we didn't previously have access to. So we actually started to survey and, and talk to all of these customers and saying, okay, what makes up your VM program, right? How are you, do you have patch management solutions in place? Right. Do you do auto patching? Uh, are you, is it mostly manual? Are there multiple teams involved? Who are they that are involved? What's, do you have SLAs and, and, and how aggressive or non-aggressive are those SLAs, all of these things? So And then we combine that with the actual outcome data to say, okay, these are the things that actually you found have at least some correlation to Mm -hmm. maybe mattering versus others that actually in some cases had negative correlation or it made it worse. Um, So to your point, right, having some sort of patch management and solution in place was really big as you would imagine. Yes, Um, I would also tell you that in general, Uh, People do things like remediate Windows vulnerabilities a lot better than they do Linux and and certainly a lot better than they do like a Java vulnerability Mm -hmm. or Apache or Tomcat. So third-party software is a big gap. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it's because it's harder, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So some of the things that we actually saw were having an SLA in place made a big difference. Uh, Having an aggressive SLA in place didn't matter at all. Oh, interesting. Uh, So if if you have an SLA that says, we're going to patch every critical vulnerability in 48 hours
1: versus we're going to patch... All vulnerab- you know. All uh, you know, high vulnerabilities and third, it, no real yeah, correlation. Yeah, not, between. not,
3: not really at all. There, w- there was a big jump between not having an SLA at all and having one, and then the the, the difference between being aggressive or not aggressive was was very little, negligible. And I, I think in some ways, you, you think about it, it. In some cases, they're probably overly aggressive, which could hurt them. Uh, oh, interesting. Because you, you get into the situations where it's like, I can't do that. Right? Uh, you can't meet that SLA, and you get frustrated teams. We're trying to do patch management and the remediation, and it's like, guys, you're you're making it unrealistic, and you get back to that age old problem that we tried to solve when we first came in, which is you're dumping a five hundred page PDF report on somebody's desk and say, here, go fix all this. I can't. Right? Exactly. So let's talk
1: about prioritization because I think this is the really interesting Mm. thing that Kenna does extremely well compared to everybody else, right? In that, if I can only patch. 10 to 25% of critical vulnerabilities and a critical vulnerability not just being a CVSS score above seven or whatever number you want to place on it. How do you really drive identifying where the real criticality is Mm -hmm. to optimize what they can actually work on.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So under the hood, I mean, what we're looking at is a lot of threat and exploit intelligence that we're collecting across the internet through sensors, through partnerships with managed service providers, SIMs, et cetera. And we're looking at a lot of telemetry about uh, the attacks on those vulnerabilities, right? So, and we're measuring successful attacks, and we're measuring volume and velocity of those as well. Okay. So, there's a big difference of whether or not this, you know, this vulnerability got exploited once last month, or it's getting hit twenty thousand times an hour, mm-hmm. right? So, there's a lot of spraying prey, as you, as you know, would go yes. across the internet. Um, we also are going to look and say, all right, is there malware that's that's tied to this? How much of it, and how often, and, and things like that? But I also want to know about the asset that it affects, right? So where does that sit on your network? How exposed is it? How important is it to you? What business processes are running off that asset? All the metadata about that to Mm -hmm. say, I want to know not just about likelihood, I need to know about impact as well, right? And then put all that together. So what we personally do is we attach a zero to 1,000 risk score to every single asset and every single application. But then we're going to combine all of that data and turn it on its head because what we want to really know is what do you have to do, Mm. right? Yes, Mm -hmm. this is a list of problems, but give me a list of solutions and hopefully a short list of solutions. So we take all of that data, turn it on its head and say, for any given group of assets or applications and you define how you do that, is here's your prescribed bang for your buck list of things that you can do that's going to reduce that risk the most with the least amount of effort
1: and i imagine it's based on the critical vulnerabilities in that group that's right uh john strand w- w- talks about this in on enterprise security weekly said look if, if you're doing an export by asset you're doing it upside down mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right what you want to know is what are those critical vulnerabilities in in really export it out the other way based on vulnerabilities because then you know when you solve this, it, it solves all these downstream activities. That's so you're right. doing the same thing. Right. Business context is driving the criticality of the asset and the risk score in the asset. Right. But then when you flip it, you're saying to protect this group of assets, these are the top two or
3: three things that you can yeah. do that minimizes the most risk. That's Is that right. really the way to think That's of it? That's right. I mean, you can think of it as what's the most likely event to occur across these mm-hmm. group of assets and what's the impact if if that does indeed happen, right? And we wanna make sure that the most likely and the biggest impact things are getting eliminated across that group of assets. And by the way, you can have bang for your buck effects in the fact that, oh, it's actually that I have the same vulnerability on a thousand assets, right? right. And I can wipe it off off all 1,000 assets by pushing out this patch through SCCM as an example or whatever.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Has there been interest in Kenna closing that loop? (laughs) Because it's interesting, right? If you look at some of your competitors or the traditional role management vendors, Mm -hmm. you're starting to see this interesting patching component start to come into their solutions, right? And again, you've got this really great prioritized data. Are customers looking for Kenna to provide that Patching yeah. and, and closing that loop because look, wh- when I traveled around the world for Tenable, for yeah. example, right? Yeah. I mean, all customers wanted was a simple closed loop patch management process. Mm-hmm. If I scanned it and I saw a vulnerability and I knew that there was a patch, can you apply the patch, rescan, and call it a
3: day? Yep. Right? Are you seeing the same thing from your customer base yet or not? We do. I think it it depends a lot on the tech. Like I said, they're also really you see our customers, you know, they're managing SCCM and they yeah. Windows are okay, and then as soon as they get off of Windows, it's like Oh my god, what are we doing here? <laughs> right? Right. Um, we do so we'd like to take that Switzerland approach not only on the assessment side but on the patch management side as okay. well. So we're talking to other vendors uh, some of them here on the show floor about right. how could we integrate with you guys and th- there's a lot I of hope f- you're talking to my buddies at Automox. I We are indeed. I love the we are indeed. A, because they're cross-platform. Yep. Yep, yeah. yep, absolutely. And one of the things that we also find is there's there's not only a patching problem or a prioritization problem but there's a workflow problem yes. across all of that as well right? right so how do you manage it when first I've got to go and get this change approved and then it's got to go test it in a certain environment and then you patch there and then it gets kicked back to a different uh, status if you will and it goes through the same approval process again before it makes it into production yeah, how do you tie all of that together right that's that's key yeah, yeah. it's still a challenge yeah, yeah where are you with arm uh the application risk management uh module that uh, funny you should ask we, we actually are uh i believe dan is going to allow me to say this uh but it's called kenna.appsec <laughs> now so we're changing oh, the name to, okay, to, okay. To, but fair enough yep yep absolutely so we have we have been putting a lot of resources it's it's one of our highest uh amount of uh, both product and engineering resources are going into that appsec product right so we're starting to take on more and Work with more of the container assessment uh, yep. folks, right? Uh-huh. So both static and dynamic uh, uh, container assessments. It's it's interesting. One of the things we've really been diving in with our customers and how they're using containers, and one, it's all over the board. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. No, um, I know. But, but I, ask Paul. We yeah. you know, our journey into containers has been interesting ourselves for our own software. So I can imagine what um, what else is out there. <laughs> it's crazy, and, and and but I would say if you were to, and the, again, we're we're little bias are skewed towards the enterprise so it's a lot of large companies for the most part um you see a lot of early journeys into their container world where they're actually it's almost like a vm replacement for them and they're very long lived and they're very heavy they actually we they they will patch containers it's like Wait. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it it blows our ops (laughs) guy's mind. He's like, why are they doing that? What are they doing? Blow that away
1: and throw in another (laughs) one. Yeah. yeah.
3: Right? They're supposed to
1: be ephemeral, but I guess
3: they're not. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I would say, you know, 80, 20, 70, 30 uh, right now with most of them right now still being long lived, but we know that's changing, right? But that affects then how do we manage that within Kenna.appsack, right? right? So so we gotta treat it, do we need to treat it as more of an ephemeral thing and say, okay, this is the static image of this Mm -hmm. container and this is where it's deployed in production. And I I care a little bit about that, but you already know about that because you're using Kubernetes or something else to manage that. So you need to be able to fix this and issue a pull request or whatever and then pull and push that out. Um, but then how do I manage the ones where you're actually, I, I almost got to treat it just like a, another network asset, right? right. Because you're just going to patch it just like you do as if it's a VM or anything else. That's right. Out there, right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Now, are you correlating data across, I, I, I think you are,
1: right? Where you can get host vulnerability data, correlate that into some of the application yeah. vulnerabilities. And r- do you use that data across to also help? change the risk scoring across those assets
3: yeah yeah okay. we absolutely do so what what you'll do is you can customers can kind of build uh, an application portfolio within the product and you might have stuff that's coming in from container assessments or dynamic or static analysis we also have sca integration so yeah. you know, those guys as well um, bug bounty, whatever it is. And then you can define it and say, and by the way, here's all the infrastructure that's used to to okay. serve up this application. And you can combine that all together. We'll give you a risk score for that. Yeah, But we're going to break it down as you get to the remediation level, right? Okay. So here's your risk. Here's y- what you often see is like, They'll break up we have something called risk meter groups which think of it our asset or application groups within the product Um, and it's often tied to a team that's responsible for remediation as you get into the application world a lot of that's going to go off to the developers but you might still have some infrastructure stuff that's going off to ops
1: so when you do that flip on its head it's like okay you got Two application critical uh, vulnerabilities. It goes to op or yeah. to dev, and then oh yeah, I got a couple host base. That's my Kubernetes or yep. the servers running my Kubernetes. These need to be fixed. And
3: when you do that, the the overall risk right. score that's for the absolutely. whole unit goes down. That's right. That's right. And we can basically loosely couple all of that together because it's usually a many to many relationship when you're talking about yes, applications right. and infrastructure. Yeah. So and and they'll especially in a container based world. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> especially in the container based yeah. world. And then. How you
1: doing? Wh- where's cloud fit into this? The cloud assets are, are they coming in as traditional VM scans? If you're running infrastructure as a service, yeah. but then you know I'm, I'm curious how like platforms and other services yeah. come in, in the mix.
3: Yeah, we'll see. We definitely see all the the big three guys are uh, Tenable, Qualys, Rapid7 are, are doing assessments out in the cloud. Yeah, but we'll also see like you know inspect I was inspect from from AWS yeah. and, yep. and things Inspector, like that. Yeah. Then, yeah, yeah, things like that are coming in as well. Um, We don't really care where they come in from, right? We're going to manage them and we'll just technically on the, on the, on, underneath the hood, right? It's like, it's a different asset identifier. It's like an ECA2 identifier or something yeah, like yeah. that versus, uh, okay. so, so I can still collect and correlate and, and dedupe and do all the things that we need to do with that. Yeah. Um, but we don't care if it's in the cloud or on-prem or wherever it is. Yeah. Right. When I talk to financial analysts, because a lot of people call me like, what's the difference between Qualys
1: and Tenable and Rapid7 and all this other yeah. stuff? And inevitably, there's an interesting conversation about who's looking at vulnerability management holistically. Yeah. I think of the traditional vulnerability management really focused still really heavily on the device vulnerability, host-based vulnerability, yeah. where we're seeing a lot of a move to application vulnerabilities in lots of different tools, right? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, there's there's SAST vendors that are doing static analysis, you have software composition analysis, you have dynamic scanners, you have the container security folks, both at the static and the dynamic layer. And when you think about holistic modern vulnerability management, it is understanding all of these vulnerabilities across all these different asset classes, and really understanding how all that comes together. And I think that's where kind of provides a lot of value mm-hmm. over the single point solutions because now you can bring all that data together and really, really get some good prioritization. Where yeah. where is risk across that entire? uh infrastructure
3: yeah i mean obviously we believe that you have to do that and as as you said everything is moving to the app whether it's yeah. uh, static analysis dynamic analysis or sca or, or whatever and even uh pre-production but also po- post-production and coming in through bug bounties and things like that we're starting to see github get involved in doing right. things with yeah. the bot and, and things like that so they're coming in from all of these different directions and you need to be able to have that holistic view uh to really understand the risk of that application or that group of applications That's awesome. Uh, Booth number, you're
1: Moscone South. No, North. Oh, North. Sorry, you are North. 6140? You got it. 6140. So if you want to see Kenna Security live in action, go to Moscone North 6140. Ed, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Everyone, thank you for watching and listening. We'll see you soon.